You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, Good to see y'all. My name is Matt Younger. I'm one of the pastors here on staff and would love the privilege to get to know you after the service if you and I have never met. Something I've been thinking about this week is how there's nothing like how a good song can hit you in the right way. So thinking about how like I can't listen to George Strait's Amarillo by Morning without thinking about my dad, uh, because my dad had a mixtape, if you know what that is, and he would listen to that in the morning sometime getting ready for work. Um, I can't hear Don Henley sing, um, whether it's in eagle form or his own um, solo stuff without thinking about my mom. And I certainly can't hear Adele sing when we were young without thinking about my sweet wife in the first little season of getting to know her a little bit. And there's just something about how a song can hit you in a visceral way, whether it's nostalgia, whether it reminds you of somebody. Um, And I'm, I'm privileged this morning to actually talk about my favorite Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, what we just sang, because, um, You know, far more than the nostalgia itself, what we've been doing in this series worthy of our songs is living in the history and in the theology of what actually makes the song great. And so that's my task for this morning. And I want to start just quickly telling you a little bit about the history of the song, uh, because it's an interesting history. First of all, um, it was written in 1847 by a, uh, a guy named Capot, and Capot was a poet in France who was approached by a local priest. Now, Capot had a bit of a uh, sordid reputation. He wasn't really known as a regular at church or um, an adamant Christ follower, but he was a gifted poet. And so leveraging that, the priest decided to go and ask him to write a song. So, of course, he must have been surprised, but he accepted. And so he meditated on the Gospel of Luke, and then he approached another man named Adolphe Adams, who was a Jewish man, and together they composed the song, much like Josh Duncan and I worked together to compose all of our songs. Some of you guys don't believe me. Um, And uh, lo and behold, three weeks later after their work, Christmas Eve Mass in 1847, Cantique Day Noel was introduced, and the song was beloved. It took off. Everybody... Really enjoyed it. It's a great song, uh, but there was a little bit of drama after the fact. Uh, it started with the fact that Capot, shortly after that, joined a socialist movement, which really didn't bode well with the local priest or the political realities of the day. And then Adams, again, the man that composed it, was Jewish. And so that one-two punch meant that the song got canned. And they said, we are not going to make this part of our canon anymore. Say la vide, you're out of here. Uh, But like all good things, when rules say you can't do that, uh, or all things that try to be constricted by rules, the song lived on and it gained popularity. So much so that eight years later in 1855, Across the pond in the United States, a northern abolitionist named John Dwight would tweak the lyrics, specifically of the third verse, um, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother, as a kind of rallying cry in the efforts of the north to eradicate slavery in our country. And so the song lives on. 
Uh, it's also uh, well known for two reasons, one probably a little more obscure. It was the first song to ever be part of a live radio broadcast. I imagine you didn't know that, but what you probably know is in the more climactic part of Home Alone 1, Kevin McAllister visits the church and they're singing A Holy Night before he goes and takes care of business at his house, right? So really significant there. It remains one of the most popular Christmas songs of all time, and whatever it does for you, its message is beautiful and compelling, and so I want to live in that now together. So let me pray for us. I just feel compelled to pray, and then we'll jump into the song. So, um, Father, I thank you for the way that these songs matter um, to the extent that they bring glory to, to God, and I'm grateful that this song does, so I pray that you would help us to see that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the three verses, I think we see three things that will guide maybe a lens by which to see it. One is the promise of grace. Second is the promise of God's identification with us. And then the last thing is his promise of restoration for us. So let's live in the promise of grace to us. The first verse, and I'm not going to sing it. Okay, you'd want my wife to sing it, but not me. Um, so here we go. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I'm thinking about what this song finds itself or where it finds itself, maybe akin to how I woke up this morning. It was dark outside. It was cold. There was frost on my truck. It was uh, it was dark, it was cold, and I think that's the picture of what Capo's trying to do here as you think about Israel's longing, Israel's yearning for hope, Israel's trying to make sense of the world, that things are broken and not as they might want them to be. And then there's something, probably the thing I learned the most about this song is, um, okay, so let's dive into the verse. So long lay the world in sin and error pining. I have always sung that, song, sung that song going, sin and error pining, really not knowing what it meant. And the best way to understand this verse is actually to do this, sin and error, comma, pining. Okay, so long lay the world in sin and error, brokenness and sin, comma, pining. What does pining mean? Do you use it regularly? I don't. It means to long or to yearn for something. So long lay the world in brokenness, comma, yearning for something different. That's the heart of the song. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I was thinking this week about um, this verse in light of something I heard on the radio. Um, if you know anything about Dallas radio history, uh, 25 plus years ago, this, uh, this station called The Ticket uh, came onto the scene and has really owned radio since then. And really in the early days of The Ticket, uh, the kind of preeminent show was The Hard Line. Um, that would have been the afternoon drive home. And the two staples of The Hard Line were Mike Reiner and Greg Williams, also known as The Hammer. Okay, so they did Radio Gold. Uh, if you're a P1, you know that. That's what they call their subscribers. But uh, until about 2007, a really hard thing happened. And that was that, um, that Greg Williams, the hammer, steeped in chemical addiction, just got to the place where everything went haywire for him and he wasn't able to do his job. And so they sadly let him go. 
And it was a very big deal uh, for Dallas, for radio, for the Hardline, for Mike Reiner. But really what happened after they let the hammer go was that they didn't really talk about it that much for the better part of 15 years until a couple years ago, Mike Reiner retired and then he decided to come out of retirement and he started a new radio station, same drive time deal. And they decided a couple weeks ago to bring the hammer back and to talk about what happened. Um, And it was really riveting. It was radio gold. But what was so interesting is Greg Williams said, and you could hear it in his voice, he's like, I've never been nervous ever to do radio ever. And he's like, my hands are shaking. He's like, I am terrified. He's like, I, in the first segment, he's like, I'm literally going to throw up. And, uh, and then he, he got into it in such a showing his humanity. He's like, guys, I'm just so ashamed of what happened. I'm just so ashamed of how everything transpired and I'm ashamed. And guys, it took everything. I just wanted to reach into the radio and I wanted to say, hammer, long lay the world in sin and error pining. I get it. We identify with you looking for something. And let me tell you something like the soul has felt its worth and you don't have to feel shame anymore. Like you, like you can look back and that thing that's still a wound can be a scar now and it can be a scar on the story of your redemption where you go, I'm not who I used to be. I have been healed. I've been redeemed. I no longer walk in that shame because my shame has been covered. My soul has felt its worth in the coming of Christ. And I, so if you know him, please, on my behalf, on the church, on Jesus' Jesus's behalf, tell him that because my brother needs to hear the gospel. Like we need to hear the gospel again and again and again that the soul feels its worth at the coming of Jesus Christ. That Paul says and makes clear in Romans chapter three that we hold that man is justified by faith. That, that God has come and has made his salvation available to us and it's ours to respond in, in belief and to say what I cannot do for myself, you have done for me. And not only that, I have faith that you are making this world new for us and that starts with me. And so I just wanted to reach into the radio and say, Hammer, you don't have to wallow in what was or work your way out of what is. There's an identity that's much more significant than a radio legend that you can receive and you can be at peace and you can talk freely about your past in a different way. And that's true for him, that's true for me in an ongoing way and it's true for you that the soul, that, that, that he appeared a new morning has broken. Our soul has felt its worth. There's a thrill of hope. Something has changed. An announcement has been made. And that is that God has come and God loves us. There is a promise of grace to us. And what's our response? We sing, fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night, oh, holy night. Oh, night divine. My friends, I just would like from my heart to yours, wherever you are, I just want you to hear there is an answer to your heartache. Whatever heartache you're carrying now in my prayer is that your soul would feel its worth in the coming of the king who's come to do something about that. The promise of grace for us. But it doesn't just stop there. We move into the second verse. God's promise of identification with us. Okay. Second verse, here we go. This is the one that maybe you don't know. 
Led by the light of faith serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So led by the light of a star sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from Orient land. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger, and all of our trials born to be our friend. I feel compelled to go to Matthew's gospel. Would love for you to turn there, second chapter, the first 12 verses, Matthew 2. Let me read this over us. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O you and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for you shall, for, so for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And Mary into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. <clears throat> okay, there's like 50 things I could say from this passage. I'm going to give you two of them. Let me start by saying this. I went to Israel last, uh, not this past summer, but the summer before. It was wonderful. You should go if you can. And one of the highlights for me was uh, this place called Herodium. Herodium was actually built by this Herod. Herodium's on the outside, the outskirts of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and it is a fortress and a palace and a, you know, kind of everything in between, high on a hill. And the walls are still there. And it was, I mean, it was everything you would think. It was massive, it was palatial, and then you get into it, and it was built for Herod, built for, Herod um, for Herod to celebrate being Herod, which to be Herod was to be the biggest possible deal. And so, of course, they had recovered, like, beautiful, extraordinary, intricate art that we were able to see. And then, like, Homeboy had a, had a movie theater, like an act, not like a theater, like a, like a projector, like had like an actual theater where people would come and perform plays for him. Like it was next level opulent. And so getting into this, you were like, man, this is, this is, this is crazy. And then you kind of find out, you see in this passage, like Herod was a total power broker. Like he's politically savvy. He's an operator. And what he's trying to do in his time is what a lot of us in Dallas are trying to do in our time. And that's really maintain power and status and privilege and protect uh, and project strength and beauty. And then really just associate with people who bring us something, help us gain something. And that was his MO. So of course it makes sense in verse two that he was scared 
because anybody who operates to live in their own power and control always becomes scared of outside threats, things that could take those things away, those idols away. And so, of course, he becomes scared that there's this story of a king and the king of the Jews who may be born and people interested enough to come many weeks journey to actually learn about who this king would be. That's a very real existential threat to Herod. So that was fascinating to learn on my little Israel trip. What was more fascinating, and the tour guide set this up perfectly at the very end, he almost said in kind of a nonchalant way, he said, oh, hey, by the way, he's like, you see this little valley there? Okay, look out. And then really only about two miles from where we were standing, he said, y'all know what that is right there? And we said, no, what is it? And he goes, that's Bethlehem. He said, that's where Jesus was born, just on the other side of Herodium. And it was such an interesting contrast to stand at the high point of power and wealth and beauty and privilege and then to look across the valley where the true king of the world was born in poverty and in, in obscurity. Look over there. And I felt tangibly, viscerally the contrast because that king over there was not known for his beauty. Isaiah 51 says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That king wasn't known for his wealth. You know, foxes have holes, but he said he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And that king wasn't known for status because that king didn't come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom to many. And so I realized in that moment, in a very real way, Jesus was almost the anti-Herod, and in the same way, I think Jesus is the anti-Dallas in a lot of ways too. Because our king, born in obscurity, in weakness, and in poverty, still continues to confound the world every day. Why? Like, why does he confound us? Why does he confound the ruling idols of our culture here? Like, why is Jesus so anti-Dallas or not like Dallas in so many ways? Well, it's because he didn't consolidate his power, but rather he gave it up. He didn't hoard his wealth, but rather he shared it and he gave it away. He didn't only associate with the haves, but he spent the overwhelming majority of his life spending it with the have-nots, with, with the forgottens. And yet in his weakness... What does he say from the other side of the valley? What does he say to everyone? The king born in poverty and obscurity, what does he say? In his weakness, he identifies with us, with everybody. And he says, you matter and I see you and you don't have to be special according to the pattern of the world. He says, no, I'm from the other side of the tracks and I'm telling you that I see you in all in all of your trials, I'm born to be your friend. I understand and I get you and I'm here to make it better. He is the king who identifies with us. Not by triumphing or championing the things that we hold so tightly, but by actually wooing us away from those things and saying in his own way that feels categorically different and a strong contrast to the things that we give our heart to. He says, let me show you the most important things that matter for eternity. And so that's one part of it. But the second part of it is who is actually coming to hear from him. Let me talk a little bit about the Magi. I did a, you know, a little bit of a dive here. Um, what I learned about them is that they were a wide range of people from all over 
who would typically practice astrology, dream interpretation, and the pursuit of wisdom and magic. And so they had come from many miles and they were very, and they were, they were very much not of Israel. They were very, very much of the nations, like very much the people out there. But they were also likely familiar with, the old, with old Testament prophecy, including Balaam's prophecy that said a star, this is Numbers 24, it says a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And this is so overwhelmingly important. Why? Because what's happening in the Magi coming to receive the grace of God is nothing more than Isaiah 60, which says, the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. To say it more simply, the nations are invited and all can receive. And God chooses to do this by bringing people from the far out, far out in. Think about the life of Jesus. What does he give so much of his time to? It is going after religiously inclined people who think they have God and his grace boxed in. And some of the first people to ever witness the glory of this grace are people from the far outside. One person I read said it well. He said, this is Gandalf and Dumbledore coming to faith. These are Slytherins coming to faith. These are people who you don't think are coming to faith or will come to faith who are actually coming to faith. Why? Because everyone who can humble themselves before the humility of God can receive his grace. That was true then, it's true now. Everyone who can humble themselves before the humility of God who confounds us that he is so not like us and yet he identifies with us can receive his grace. And what's another takeaway? Don't ever, my friends, count somebody out. Don't ever count a person out, never. God doesn't and neither should we. And if he counted people out, we wouldn't be here. And so we see the God who identifies with us in our weakness. He knows our need, we sing, to our weakness, no stranger. Behold your king, behold him lowly bend. Behold your king, your king, before him bend. In our own weaknesses, he identifies with us as one who became weak himself and all are invited to receive the promise of his identification with us. And then the last thing, the promise of restoration for us. The last verse, here we go. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. In chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord then ever we praise him, his power and glory evermore proclaim, his power and glory evermore proclaim. Thinking about in John's gospel, John's gospel gives you such a, an interesting snapshot into the life of Christ uh, in those last few uh, days and weeks before he's crucified. And nearing the end, John 14, 27, and part of verse 28, Jesus says this, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. I give you my peace. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. I'm reading this um, Christmas devotional with our family right now by Ann Voskamp. It's beautiful. Um, it's a nightly devotion. And a couple nights ago, it struck me when she said that fear is what happens when we think love will run out. Fear is what happens when we think love will run out. I'm thinking about my own heart, my own anxieties, my own desire for control. And I'm thinking about being one of your pastors. And I'm just thinking how timely this idea is to be reminded that a word of love, the affirmation of love, and an affirmation of peace are not things that we need to go searching for but rather things that have already been communicated in the most declarative way over us. Do you know why we pass the peace at the beginning of the service? You know why we say that? Like if we were more high church, we would look at each other and say, peace be with you. That is an ancient rite, an ancient practice to remind one another that the settled poise that we have as Christians, this settled identity of those who are loved and those who are spoken for, should account for every aspect of our lives. If you dig into the research about the coming generation and to some degree the preceding generations, you'll find that this is uh, one of the loneliest, if not the loneliest generation in human history with respect to friendships, that belief in God is getting further uh, a part of a staple cultural identity and that we are by ex extension more given to therapy than any generation in human history. And let me say a word about therapy and counseling. It's wonderfully significant and important, therapy is. It's really important for us to dig in, especially to how God's grace speaks to our lives, the things that we've experienced and the things that God's moving us toward. There's, there's a wonderful place for counseling. But I'm convinced that counseling goes better when you're working from an affirmation of love and peace, the fact that we're spoken for, and not looking for some kind of wisdom, some kind of surrogate, it's another way of saying you're loved and you have peace. Like I'm, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, some of us, what you need more than anything else in your life is not a new insight, but an old insight. You, you don't need a new path. You need what Isaiah talked about is an old path, is an ancient path. And you need to believe once and for all that you really are loved. And you really are because of Jesus Christ at peace. And that God really has broken the hostility and brought reconciliation and spoken peace over your life. You are at peace with God. God loves you. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like the Lord loves you. The Lord loves me the same way that he loves Jesus Christ. The way that his heart swells in glowing affirmation for his, his son, his beloved son, because of my faith in Christ is his affirmation of my life and your life. Maybe it's not a new insight you're looking for. Maybe it's an old insight. Maybe it's not a new affirmation. Maybe it's an old, maybe it's a word that's already been spoken over your life. Maybe the anxiety that you're looking at, that, that there, there's some kind of way that you're trying to curb the anxiety 
that's missing the fact that if Jesus were right here, he would say to you, beloved child, be at peace. Let not your hearts be troubled. I love you and I'm coming back for you and I'm making all things new and I will wipe every tear from your eye. It's that affirmation, that promise of restoration that starts in our hearts because when we walk as poised people who know we are loved and know we are at peace, societies change. At least they do historically. This was the strength of Wilberforce's argument many centuries ago as he took on the British establishment and said, slavery is cruel. This was the strength of what we've already said, the abolitionist movement of the North that said, we're gonna put an end to slavery. This was the strength, the biblical force of MLK's argument when he fought for justice in our time. And if you know, if it matters to you, there are a litany of secular folks who say, that the dignity of human beings, every person being made in the image of God, is the foundation of civil rights and civil liberties. Basically, the idea that every person has worth is a decidedly Christian inheritance. And we get to carry that as believers with poise in saying there is a promise of restoration. He will not leave us as orphans. We are loved by God. And we are at peace with God. And we need to settle further into that. And then as we settle into that, make more sense of what it means to understand the love of God and understand the peace of God. But don't go looking for it elsewhere. Why do we sing sweet hymns of joy? Because everything is going to be okay. You know that? That's why we sing sweet hymns of joy, because everything is ultimately going to be okay. Our king has been born to save us. And O Holy Night remembers the night when everything changed, when his grace appeared, when he identified with us, and we saw the beginning of this restoration project in our own hearts and Lord willing in the way that we advocate and do justice for others. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing the song again. Father, I thank you that you have restored us so that we can restore others. And knowing that you will promise a final restoration of all things. I thank you that because of Jesus, we are at peace. And I pray that we would live in that peace, that we would settle into that peace, into that joy, into that hope. God, I thank you that we are loved I thank you that we are loved perfectly, that we are loved in a way that these Dallas idols, these things that we think that we have to have could never love us like. God, we, we, we just recognize that, that these things that we are so inclined to give our hearts to, Lord, what people think of us, how much money we have, how beautifully we project, how put together we feel or seem that those are things that we can ultimately lose and they make horrible gods because all they do is take and they don't give. And yet here you are from the other side of the valley in a different way with a different ethic showing us what matters the most and identifying with us as a friend in our weakness. And I pray that you would help us to settle into that gospel more and more so that it would help us to see and change our lives as those who are loved and at peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.